Good morning to our podcast listening audience for Saturday, February 20th, AD 2021. Welcome to our podcast entitled Crossroads, where our symbols of the interstate markings of Interstate 40 traveling east and west and the interstate markings of Interstate 55, which travels north and south. It is here where north and south meets east and west. We're coming together at the epicenter and the center point. It is where our journey commences. It is called the crossroads. It is where at crossroads we discuss contemporary topics of interest with leading men and women in business and industry, politics and government, public safety, health and wellness, neighborhood and community development, education and religion, criminal justice reform, and the criminal justice system and the law. These and other issues of major concern are discussed and analyzed because they affect us as individuals, as groups, and as a nation. In the month of February, we will be spotlighting Black history, and this is the third installment of a four-part series. Our theme is the Black experience, Africa to America. Special thanks is being given to our producer, Dr. Bruce Smith, co-owner of BBS GospelNet, along with his wife, Dr. Victoria Smith. And without them, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you, Dr. Bruce and Dr. Victoria. Also, I want to thank the podcast listening audience for your tuning in. And you can always inbox us with your questions, your comments, and your concerns. Also, if you like this podcast, hit the follow button and let us know that you are a part of the Crossroads podcast and our listening audience. As you know, this nation is being bombarded with so many issues that confront us on a daily basis. I want to let you know we're right now in a deep freeze here in the South. Unprecedented cold, unprecedented loss of electrical service and other power. And so these issues confront us, especially so many homes and families, even to the point that we have not heard of families freezing to death, even in their homes and in their automobiles. A lack of safe running water that people can use for their basic needs. Shelves on grocery stores are running completely empty. We we had an unprecedented cold weather spell here in the Deep South. And these are issues that confront us on today. Not only that, but we look at the aftermath of the impeachment of former President Donald Trump and its implications. We are seeing the assault and armed confrontation on the nation's capital, leaving others dead, many wounded, officers ransacked, a gallows erected, and calls for the hanging of the vice president, destruction of property, and much more. We are at a crossroads. We are dealing with a crisis related to the COVID virus, even the efficacy of obtaining and the distribution, and of course, the continued deaths from the virus. We're looking at homicides at an unprecedented record, even suicides by our youth and young adults. Schools and administrators are forced with the threat of the loss of funds of students 
don't return to live classes. Even in the midst of poor academic achievement and some are being threatened with state sanctions against their school systems. We see the pandemic affecting businesses and hospitals and departments and jobs. We have a new president and a new female vice president, which is historical in itself. And yet, we have to admit that they have the inheritance of these problems and more. And that's why I tell you we are at a crossroads. I want to thank you for tuning us in on this morning. We have a very special guest that I would like to present to you and share her with you. Her name is Dr. Patricia Syphax. She is historical in that she is the first female co-host of the Crossroads podcast. So she is a groundbreaker as well. And our podcast uh, is the farthest that we have ventured to interview our guests. So this is quite significant in itself. And I would like to introduce to you uh, Dr. Patricia Syphax. And I would like to give just a portion of her bio. She is a retired principal, currently serving as an adjunct professor at Alberta College and Cardinal Stritch University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She is also a leadership coach at Leadership Coaching for Excellence, LLC, in which she founded. She is also the Sunday School Director at New Testament Church of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She is married to Pastor Arnold Syphax Sr., and together they have a ministry in which they provide marriage counseling, they work with the youth, and they mentor individuals. They have three wonderful adult sons, three fabulous daughters-in-law, and five outstanding grandchildren. Uh, I don't know anything about uh, the cat and the dog. She didn't put anything on it or, or her bird if she has one. But I want to welcome you all uh, to Dr. Patricia's side facts, and I want to welcome her to Crossroads on this morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Fine. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on this morning. And just to clarify, um, there are no cats and dogs uh, now that the children are gone, but we have had our share of animals. Um, and so, but that life is over. The kids are gone. And so now it's just Arnold and I, and we are happy. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. I think <laughs> Uh, they call that empty nesters, and uh, yes. I'm sure your nest is not empty. Uh, it may be vacant for some time, but it's not quite empty if, it's, if you're like most of us as parents. Exactly. <laughs> Dr. Syphax, this short bio doesn't do your life justice. So tell me, how do you handle all of this? And I know that there are other things that's not written uh, in your bio, uh, but how do you handle all of this? Um, you're speaking of just everything that's going on, or is that? Is yes, that, that and what's written in your bio, because I know there are so many that's other things handled. that's right, not written. Right, right, exactly. Well, I have to say that um, I was a principal for 16 years at four different schools, and I was um, blessed uh, for uh, all of the schools to re that I've led receive um, awards, and uh, right before I retired, I received um, a, um, a, a award, a leadership award, um, and I was only, it was me and one other person in my district, and we work at the largest district in Wisconsin. Um, 
And so I had a very rewarding uh, career. But when I retired, um, I, I wasn't expecting to just kind of sit around, but my life became retired. And so really, I, I prayed and asked God for direction on what my next calling would be. And he made it clear to me that I should um, develop leaders, uh, new leaders going into uh, school administration, um, current leaders around equity, and that's what I, that's what I do um, as well. It just really help people, um, mentor them. My husband and I have a lot of experience. I have a lot of experience in my current um, area of leadership. And so to really just pour into people. And it is a lot. I do do a lot of uh, different things. But um, the, the one nice thing is that uh, in being retired and sort of working on your own is that you get to pick and choose, you know, what you want to do. And so I try to work hard at keeping um, that balance. Uh, it's not always easy, but I, I try to do it and um, be led by the Holy Spirit. So really, uh, and so when God says, say no, or you can't do it, it's too much. I try to listen because when I don't, that's when I really get myself into a lot of trouble. <laughs> so that's how I do it really. Okay. So, uh, Anytime you're spirit-led and spirit-directed, you don't have to worry about whether or not you're going in the wrong direction or if uh, whatever avenue he's leading you into uh, will not be rewarding. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But you can't do that on a regular job. So that's the beauty of me being in this season in my life. Well, I want to ask you... Um, while you were um, on a regular job, and I'm assuming uh, because you're a retired principal uh, that you also were a classroom teacher as well. Correct. And how was that? How, how uh, did that, um, and I'm assuming uh, that you worked toward um, your goal of being a principal. Uh, was that something that you, um, decided to do an early age? How did that come about? Well, uh, actually, no. Um, I Actually, education is a second career for me. So I started off, I was a corporate trainer and worked at an insurance company for eight years. And um, I had, my husband and I had two kids. And when my son was six months, I discovered, or we discovered, I was pregnant with a third child. And at the time, uh, that job required a lot of uh, traveling, and the area that I was traveling in was um, a six-week training. So literally, they were expecting me to go away, train during the um, week, and then come back on the weekends. And so uh, the company had just made that change. They had acquired some other satellite offices, so that's something that wasn't there when I first took the job, um, and they were transforming it into more of a out of the office um, training in other cities in the state of Wisconsin. So at that time, I decided, after praying about it and discussing it with my husband, we decided that I would quit and stay home with the kids. So I actually stayed home for 10 years, and during that time, I um, you know, really reflected on what I wanted to do next. Uh, one piece of feedback that I got that really helped me make my decision was that I kept hearing from people that I was training that I was the best trainer they had ever had. So that kind of sparked in my thought, hmm, maybe I should have been a teacher. And so, um, you know, being at home with my kids, um, I remember one day reading an article about the test scores of African-American children, and I, I was appalled. I had three black sons of my own. They were young. Um, they were having their own uh, experiences at school. And it was at that moment, reading that article, that I decided, you know what, I'm going back to school to be a teacher. And so I enrolled at Alberto College, actually, where I work now. 
And it was um, during that journey, that first year being in classes that God gave me the vision, I want you to be a principal. And I thought, wow, okay, I haven't even begun to be a teacher yet. And so through the whole time I was going to school, when they were asking us, um, you know, what should the teacher do about this that, and the other, my brain was thinking, how would the principal handle it? It's so the interesting thing is that I was, I remember in my first year, um, I was presenting something and this woman, she was uh, in class, she was older than I was. And I was an adult student at that time because I was married, had three kids. And she said to me, she said, you know what? I don't see you as a teacher. I see you as a principal. And so that was like confirmation for me that um, the thoughts that God had put in my head about being a principal, like that was the path I was to take. So anyway, um, while I was in school, I worked at this all boys uh, leadership academy was uh, for boys three through five. And I actually taught there during the summer and um, during on Saturdays. And so that gave me a lot of experience working with kids, um, really enjoyed it while I was going to school. And so once I graduated, um, I received the position at Milwaukee Public Schools. And right away after my first year, I enrolled in a graduate class because I knew I needed to, to get the principal's license and get the administrative leadership degree. And so um, I enrolled, um, I applied for an MPS at the time you had to have taught for three years. And um, so once those three years were up, and the process at the time was you put your name, you submit an application to the district. And again, I mentioned that it worked for the largest district in the state of Wisconsin, um, and it's located in Milwaukee. You would put, you would submit an application, they would put your name on the list. And, um, and then, you know, someone was interested in you, and this was for an assistant principal position. If they were interested in you, they would call you. So I got my letter, my confirmation letter that they had received my application. I was no, number 286 on the list. So I had a, a number of veteran teachers and administrators who told me, you will never get called. <laughs> You're number 286 on the list. And although I was in graduate school, it was in curriculum and instruction, and it wasn't the administrative leadership um, degree. And that's a whole nother story, um, a sale. In, uh, there was a discount that was offered at the time. And so I went with that thinking that, oh, you know what, to get the license after I get my uh, master's is probably going to be just a couple of extra credits, which was incorrect. It was like, it ended up being a whole nother master's degree. So I have three masters and, and one doctorate. But anyway, at the time that I applied, I had just completed um, a degree a master's degree in curriculum and instruction with a focus in math and science. Well, I got the letter in May, and by June, folks were calling me because they had heard about me or what have you. So anyway, to make a long story short, I began my um, assistant principal journey that August. Now, again, I applied in May, began in August um, as an assistant principal. I had taught for three years, but the feedback that I always got as a teacher was they couldn't believe I was, like even my first year, I can't believe you're a first year teacher. They kept thinking I was a veteran teacher. Um, and um, I really had a desire. I felt like my purpose and calling was for our children to be educated. And to this day, I still, you know, every now and then, and I taught third grade at the time, Every now and then I get um, kids who talk about me being their favorite teacher. And I remember at this particular school, 
And let me just mention, Milwaukee is the most hyper-segregated uh, city in the, in the nation. And it is considered the worst place to raise a black child. I mean, we have high incarceration rates, um, our achievement levels, there's huge gaps. Um, there's a lot of oppression that happens here. And so, um, and this was back, you know, when I was teaching, this was back in the 90s. And so my, I felt like it was my responsibility to connect with the kids, give them a high quality education in my classroom and a joy for learning. And so um, quickly I became a popular teacher and I can remember like my third year of teaching, there were other third grade teachers as well. And I remember when normally like at the end of the school year, um, the principal and the leadership team will decide which kids will go into your classroom. Well, I remember when they were doing the, the, the separating, I was told, oh, we have to do yours separate because there were so many requests for you. We have to look at this whole, you know, dynamics. So anyway, um, when I started that third year, I'll never forget this little white girl um, and majority of the kids at the time I think that school probably was about 80% black and 20% white but I remember this little white girl saying I am so excited to be in your classroom I have never had a black teacher and that to me spoke violence because I knew that you know there's a shortage in our district especially there is a shortage and this is nationwide now too shortage of black teachers and i often thought you know i want to be that teacher for the black kids and then when she said that it just reminded me that i want to be that teacher for all kids you know because white kids need to have a high quality black teacher as well you know and so because their whole journey i know my kids whole journey all of their teachers were always white so anyway um I uh, was an assistant principal for three years, and then um, I was pushed <laughs> because actually after becoming assistant principal, I remember they um, asked me to cover for a principal um, one week. The principal had to had an, a family emergency, and so, and she had to go out of town, and it was at a tough school, and. Um, you know, I know I, I could always say up until that point in my career, it's like, I've heard kids say they, uh, other kids cuss, but I've never heard it myself because they would never say it around an adult. Well, I walk on this playground and I hear like right in my face, not directed at me, you know, kids swearing. So I'm like, oh my goodness, and this is an elementary school. So anyway, I had to come in and lay down the law. <laughs> that first day and um, the teachers told me, oh my God, this was the best week we have ever had. And um, they knew their principal was retiring. So they were asking, you know, can you apply for the job here? And I'm thinking to myself, absolutely not. And I called my uh, regional um, supervisor at the time. And I said, you know what? I don't think I want to be a principal. I." I will be happy being the assistant principal. I remember I lost like five pounds that, that week <laughs> from the stress. <laughs> it was just, it, it was a big transition. And, um, and she said, no, you have the skills. I think that was probably my, my testing point. And she said, no, you have the skills, you can do this. So um, then I, that summer, they placed me at a summer school, and I ended up being at that school for six years, uh, which was on the north side of Milwaukee, predominantly um, black school, but um, all white staff. I mean, I all white teachers. I had one African-American teacher. Um, and most of my career, really, I mean, every school, I've been, I've been at four schools. So then after I left, that school, I went um, on the other side of town um, because at the time the superintendent, um, I asked for a transfer. I was, um, it was 
a bad budget year um, for our district and I no longer had an assistant principal and it was just, it was a lot of work. It was really stressful, um, but I was making it happen. I mean, uh, when I left kids, um, reading had improved. Um, it, it, there were just a lot of great things. Kids' parents were telling me how much, you know, their kids uh, loved me and how good I was for the school and all of that. But anyway, the the superintendent said, you know what, we always put our black principals, because again, I live in a hyper-segregated city um, on the north side of town. I want to put you on the south side of town. He said, I never call anybody in to ask them. Usually we just place them wherever we want. So I said I would go there. And uh, so I ended up running two schools at the same time for um, about a year and a half. And then um, I, you know, thought this is this is crazy because um, again, that's being a principal of one school is a lot of work. And then when you're trying to do two schools, that's that's even crazier. So um, I ended up when the enrollment increased at one of the schools I had acquired, I stayed there for six years. And then I took a sabbatical to finish my doctorate and then uh, spent the last three years again on the South side of Milwaukee, which is predominantly white and Latinx. So um, I can say I have had in my career a variety of experiences working with different groups of um, students, different groups of adults and um, their parents. So I really do feel like my, my experience has been well-rounded in that okay. regards. And so, um, after 16 years of doing that job, and most people don't last that long, um, I thought it's time for me to retire and do something else. But I loved it. <laughs> loved it. Outstanding. Um, you've certainly laid out uh, your motivation uh, for being connected to education, not only for the benefit of your children, but for the benefit of all of the children. And one of the things I wanted to um, ask you, because the only thing that I knew about Milwaukee came from early in life when I used to watch the Milwaukee Bucks basketball team, uh, Lou Alcindor, Lucius Allen, uh, Oscar Robertson, uh, and those guys. But I always saw a tremendous amount of uh, blacks in the in the arena, and um, so what was your early childhood experiences uh, like as it relates to your family, uh, your neighbors and neighborhoods, as well as your friends, uh, your school life, and your teachers. Sure. So my parents are both from Memphis, um, and they moved to Milwaukee in 1959 and got married. And they moved here because at the time, the North had more opportunities in the South. So they migrated to Milwaukee. There was already family here uh, ready to welcome them who had also uh, lived in the South and was now living in the North. And so my parents were married in 1959. I was born in 1960. And um, they bought a house, I, I think it was in 1963. So that that's like when, you know, I, as far back as I can remember. And so in our neighborhood, it was integrated at the time and like a lot of neighborhoods, um, white flight um, took place, you know, um, and more and more African-Americans were moving into the neighborhood. And so in the area where I lived, there was a white suburb that was called um, Whitefish Bay. And um, that was the, the name of the suburb in, in Milwaukee. And so uh, where I lived, they used to call it Blackfish Bay because uh, a lot of prominent people were moving 
in that area as well back in the 60s. And so eventually um, it became uh, an all-black neighborhood. You know, I had my friends were black. Um, my parents were, uh, especially my mother, was very active in the civil rights. Um, she marched with uh, Father Graffi, who was a priest um, and very um, much active in organizing um, in Milwaukee, uh, fighting um, against school segregation, uh, discriminatory housing, uh, redlining. Um, and for those who may not know what redlining is, is you know when you're you're you literally look at the city plan and you draw a line and say black people can live here, but they can't live there. And so, um, and when that happened, um, you know, we were all concentrated in one particular area of the city. And I can remember just even a couple of years ago, our, um, the doctor that delivered me is black. And then he also delivered two of my children. And so he had a 90th, his daughter gave him a 90th birthday. And he lived in um, a suburb in Milwaukee. And he talked about how in order to even buy the land, like someone had to come and pose as a white person, as him, a white person. And uh, in order to be able to make an offer on this land, because there was no way that they were going to sell him a piece of land um, being a black man. And then, you know, once the transaction happened, hello, I'm here and there's nothing you can do about it. So it was just sad that those kind of things have had to happen. And unfortunately, they're still happening. Um, and so um, in Milwaukee, so we have the, the hyper, um, the redlining. And so all of our, my friends were black, as I mentioned, but my mother, um, who was fighting against uh, school seg segregation, and at the time, Milwaukee Public Schools would not comply with the uh, Brown versus the Board, which happened, you know, that ruling was in 1954. They exactly, refused, 1954, uh, right. Brown versus uh, Topeka, Kansas Board of Education. Uh, many of us down south would remember uh, as well. And I want to mm -hmm. say um, that I'm, most of the uh, perception that we who were living in the South had of uh, Chicago's and the Milwaukee's was that it was, even though it was uh, integrated, uh, that everybody got along together. Uh, lived in the same neighborhoods, uh, attended the same schools, uh, walked hand in hand with each other. And it was to us seemed like to be uh, a utopia a land of opportunity. And, and now you're telling me that uh, my perception has, has been distorted uh, by reality. Is that right? That's right. And I, I think what the difference um, was and probably still is maybe um, between the North and the South is that you had um, the racism in the South was very overt. And so people might call your name, what have you. And here is very, um, you know, uh, folks might smile in your face, but the, the policies that are putting in place, the things that are being said behind your back, you know, it's very subtle. And sometimes you can't put a finger on it because you, you're the outsider. So you don't really know what's going on inside. And so I can imagine that coming here, it may appear like, oh, you know, the people get along there, you know, because nobody, you can go places, nobody's, um, outwardly calling you a nigger, but you can, you better believe when they get with their family and friends, um, they are scheming to try to find a way to, um, you know, um, to keep you down. And so 
again, that's when, you know, you had this redlining, like there's so many blacks moving to our city. We've got to do something about it. So let's concentrate them in one part of the city. And it still persists today. And I think about when my husband and I tried to buy a house um, in the early 80s, we, and we were in our 20s, you know, and we didn't know, we didn't get approved for the law. We didn't know what it is. We thought it was us. Like there was something wrong with us. Like, did we, you know, I mean, and I can't say we, we didn't have like stellar uh, credit, you know, we may have had a couple of mispayments mm -hmm. here and there, but then I would go to work and hear my white friends say they had bankruptcies and like horrible things on their credits and they bought a house. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, since a lot of things has been revealed in um, the mortgage practices, now I can look back and, and, and what came out like years later is like back in the 80s when we were trying, they were really notorious for those kind of things. Like they, you know, you have two applications, one application, um, black family, and you have the application of the white family. The black family can have the exact same credit um, score, mm -hmm. everything. And the white um, family would be approved and the black family would be denied. Or the black family can even be better than the white family, but they'll be um, rejected and the white family uh, mortgage will be approved. And even today, so my husband and I bought a new house um, this is our the third house we purchased, and so we we eventually got over over those hurdles. But um, but this is the third house that we purchased, and we live in a predominantly white um, suburb um, outside of Milwaukee. And due to COVID, with all these wonderful um, uh, um, interest rates right now, we were like, oh, let's finance, you know, interest rates at two point whatever, let's refinance. Mm -hmm. So my husband was, and we bought this house in 2017. So my husband was looking back at the application and he said, do you, do you know you're listed here as a white woman? I'm like, what? And I looked at it and, you know, when I thought, I said, you know, I thought to myself, this was the easiest loan process I have ever had because in the hmm. past, it's like there was all these things drawn out. And, um, and so, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, the house costs more uh, than in the past. Uh, you know, it's like we're spending more money, blah, 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 blah. But it went through mm -hmm. not without a hitch. Well, wow. so when I applied to refinance, so we were looking at our paperwork and I said, let's, let's see, what am I listed as? I was listed as a black woman. Oh my gosh. I thought they wanted to draw blood, like excellent credit history. Um, clearly mm -hmm. you see, we got money in the bank. We got 403, 401s and all this, mm -hmm. you know, and we're, we weren't even asking to take equity out of our house. We just wanted to refinance whatever we owe, refinance that at the lower rate, because of course we want the benefits of the lower payment. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, it got to prove that the, well, first of all, and you know, I, I have to admit part of the situation too, is that now I'm contracted, but I also have a pension. So it's like, you're guaranteed to get your money. Well, first of all, they wanted me to get all these different letters um, from contractors stating that they were would rehire me, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, okay, got it, did it. Um, and then, of course, I would be the unlucky person. So then they approved it. And then I would be the unlucky person that would get audited. Um, and so I was <laughs> audited. And they almost, and so the, the loan officer is like, oh, my gosh. They, they didn't approve your loan. He's, and then he texted me back. He said, they just approved it. Because, you know, it was like, what else do they want? And right. I, I mean, like, we had the total picture. Mm -hmm. And probably if we pulled all our money out, could darn near pay for the house. But 
And, and like Enoch said, I got the black woman treatment. I got the black, so I got the white woman treatment when I first bought the house. Mm-hmm. And that was sailing through. But then it reminded me of all the past experiences. And so with our first house that we bought, we had a black loan officer and she said, oh my goodness. She's like, it's, and she told us, she said, it's not you. She said, but I have never had this happen before. They are like checking every, so it took months for them to finally approve the loan. And so again, it's, and then I read, read this article um, that a friend sent to me and she's like, I had to explain, you know, I had shared with her, uh, about what happened in 2017. And she sent me this article. She's like, Pat, you're not crazy. Um, and you may have seen this article. I can't remember what city it is, but this family who had an appraisal done mm-hmm. and the appraiser underappraised the house and they were trying to fight it with the appraisal company. The appraisal company would not hear it. So then the couple asked their white friend to come in the house and posed as them, and they were going to have the house reappraised again. So the white friend said, sure. And they uh, moved all of the um, pictures, and the white friend put all of her pictures up. And guess what? Mm -hmm. The appraisal amount went up $500,000. Wow. Because this white one, and this just happened. So um, these kind of things happen in, Milwaukee um, all the time. And, and, you know, right now we're dealing with the Kenosha situation and that's been on national news uh, exactly. with uh, police brutality. And like I said, I have three sons and I mean, they had literally, I have written everybody in the city I was going to move my sons out of the state because they were constantly being stopped and harassed by the police as teenagers for just driving. And we call it driving while black, constantly being stopped. And, you know, it, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. And it's scary. So it makes it scary sometimes mm-hmm. um, to live here, you know, to live in America, period. And so my growing up was um, I went to to a Catholic school because my mother, um, I believe, could not in um, good faith send us to a school district that refused to uh, to, uh, integrate. And actually, it wasn't until 1978 that, I believe it was 1970, or maybe it was 1976, that they actually... Uh, were forced, the courts forced them to comply. That's 22 years later. How did they get away with that? They fought it in court, tooth and nail. And I think about, and I, you know, like I said, retired from that district. And I think about all the money you spent on fighting this in court, and that money could have been used to help make schools better. I mean, like, what a waste of money. But you know Mm -hmm. what? The way our city is designed is still uh, (laughs) segregated. It is still segregated. And so um, there's policies and practices that need to change in our city if things are going to get better. And coronavirus definitely, like, exposed the um, racist practices. And and I have to say, um, you know, racism is so ingrained in uh, the fabric of America that sometimes, and I think especially if you're not a part of a marginalized group, you have no idea, you don't even know what to begin to look for because it's like it's, Mm -hmm. it's internalized. It's you don't even know what it is. And so um, um, it's, you know, we're, we're seeing it all over, all over. The so country. when you're, when you as an, a, a young uh, female who is also African-American, highly educated, 
Um, and if you witness and are a part of these practices and you have a, a husband and a family system uh, that helps to buffer you, what chances does the average African-American in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, living in areas of uh, low achievement, uh, high incarceration, uh, educational um, restrictions, how do you handle that? You know what, I truly, I believe we need to band together and hold people accountable. So let's start in schools, okay? Um, mm -hmm. I am sometimes just shocked at the things that parents do not complain about. Now, I mentioned I have worked on different, uh, both sides of the parts of town. And I, one thing I learned um, when I was principal at a predominantly white school is that if there's any little issue, those parents are coming, they're, they're coming uh, to talk to you about it. Mm -hmm. And um, if their child is failing, they want to know why. I think um, we need to really begin to hold our schools accountable. If your child is failing, you need to go and find out why. Mm -hmm. What is the school going to do about it? You know, of course, do what you can do, but also what is the school going to do about it? Because I'm going to tell you, I hear there is a lot of, and like I said, I um, work with new leaders and I work with um, um, also veteran principals. I coach them as well. And there is like this sense of um, blaming the kid. As educators, we love to blame. It's, it's the kid's fault. It's their families. It's this, that, and the other. And the thing that I would always push back on my staff is, you know what? Whatever is going on at home, we, there, we don't have no control over that. But the question is, what are we going to do when the kid is here with us for seven hours a day? So, um you know, uh, it, it's like when a, a child is struggling, putting, I, I'm trying, so what I'm trying to do as a coach is change the discourse from that negative deficit mindset, because there is a deficit mindset around um, our children, our people, because the media is uh, constantly feeding that. Um, mm -hmm. If you don't know uh, the true history or the backstories behind what you're, you're, you're normally taught in schools, then, you know, you just believe what you hear and see. And you don't look mm -hmm. for the strength in the child, in their communities, in their families. And so um, one of the things I have been working on is trying is changing that discourse. So if a teacher is coming or if, you know, if a principal is giving me a scenario of things that teachers say, you know, let's, let's look at how can we change that narrative to putting it, the responsibility back on. So what are you going to do about it? Okay. If a kid is not working in class or rather than, you know, blaming the child because you're the paid professional. What are you going to do to mm -hmm. help engage that student? Like that puts the 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 um, responsibility back on the adult. Mm -hmm. And I I think that we have what has happened is that um, sometimes, especially now, I could just speak. Uh, for Milwaukee, like I believe that many times we've had bad experiences in schools. And so even going to into a school building, you don't get, get a good feeling um, as a parent. 
And because um, I can even remember with my kids, when my uh, kids were in a suburban school, and I remember, and this is before I became an educator, um, you know, and I remember hearing these messages, oh, you should pop in on your kids' um, classroom at any time. And there were times that I, I you know, went mm-hmm. to do just that and just made to feel like, oh, my God, like, what are you doing here? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. so um, I, and, you know, and I was in school for education at the time, but even I felt intimidated by that. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's why I made it my business, like when parents, families, and kids uh, would come into my building, it's like, um, you know, like this celebration. And I can, you know, I can um, remember, first of all, some kids are like, you are always happy. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not always happy, but I want you to believe that mm-hmm. I am always happy because this is a happy place to be and I'm going to make it an exciting place for you because I want you to feel like you're a part of this community. And I did the same for for um, adults. But the thing is, when you're an administrator, you also have to work with the, your staff and everybody isn't always there. So then you have to help pull them along and point out to them the strength of the family like i can remember we had a parent i mean she was just she had issues i mean she had issues but Mm -hmm. on the flip side i also looked at and i said to them but she's also a strong advocate for her child and that's a plus now Mm -hmm. could she have come in a different way yes okay so then you know uh me as an african-american uh, principal, then I can have that conversation with the mom. Because there, there were people, you know, I had that relationship with parents. I tried to um, uh, make that connection. So then, you know, you can kind of tell them, you know, you need to come in a little, can you come in a little bit calmer because you really blah, 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 blah. And so I just think that we need to be more involved. We need to speak our voice, but there's always a way of doing it. So, you know, we, we don't go in tearing down the school. Uh, mm-hmm. But we do need to ask uh, the questions. We need to do our part um, so it doesn't excuse us from making sure, you know, Johnny has all of his homework completed, uh, you know, providing that, that space that he's attending every day. You know, you do the things that you need to do as a parent, but if your child is not su- succeeding, you need to hold the school accountable. You know, if you say, like, for example, um, I don't know what it's like in Memphis, but um, we've adopted the Common Core State Standards. Um, and so the standards, uh, what, your, chi- what you, your child should learn, for example, by second grade, are clearly mm-hmm. uh, stated. And actually, you can go online and look them up and see. Well, if you don't see that in your child's work, or because uh, this is the other thing, you know, the dumbing down of the curriculum. Um, Thank you. Saying, Thank you. Yes. The, uh, you know, saying that, again, the blame is always put on the kid. The, the child, um, um, they can't do it, blah, blah, blah. Well, then you need to scaffold. How are you going to accelerate and scaffold your teaching so that they are able to access the curriculum? And in second grade, they should be accessing second grade work. But what you see mm-hmm. is, um, you know, a child could be in fifth grade and they're doing second grade work. Like that right. is not going to help them, you know, and it's happening like school wide. And so then what happens is if, you know, your kids are being given low level work and now they're in fifth grade and they're not able to achieve fifth grade standards, well, maybe we should look at him for special education. You know, and that's a whole nother question. I mean, a whole nother um, issue, the over-identification of our children, especially boys Mm -hmm. in um, special education when you, the school, have been providing low-level education from the beginning. 
And so, um, and this coronavirus, you know, really for our district exposed that because um, we were placed on lockdown March 14th. And um, suburban schools um, in Milwaukee right away, you know, because they had certain systems already in place for like snow days, because we do have snow days here. Um, on a snow day, typically our uh, students are home. A lot of times t teachers are home too. So there's, there's no expectations around work. Well, where I live now, when they have a snow day, and I didn't know this, but when they have a snow day, they have um, they go online, so then their teaching is online. So when um, the shutdown happened, a lot of those districts um, got together and they provided something for kids. So whether it was immediately they were able to get online, and I and I clearly I understand that you know there are families that don't have technology or the internet. So that's a little bit more challenging in an urban district. But the thing is, our district did not basically went silent for two months. Now they did, you could get like worksheets, but from what I hear, that was a joke, you know? And so they were slow to move. And it was like, these are the most, um, the students who are suffering the most academically and there wasn't, I felt, now I'm on the outside now looking in, but I have talked to people like you, um, the, the most vulnerable group of kids, and you go silent, you know. And I do know, like, there were a couple of principals who their staff wanted to mobilize and do something, and they were told, oh, no, you can't, because the other issue is we have, um, we have a powerful um teachers union mm -hmm. which is that's fine but when you work against um <laughs> educating kids in some of your practices and are protecting teachers more than the mm -hmm. student that's a problem so um um and so in yes. that case i think they didn't really mobilize and get themselves together until may so then that's like two months of kids doing nothing well the, and, and the district itself like at certain locations you could pick up a packet of work that was unacceptable to me like that mm -hmm. was unacceptable and that should have been unacceptable to the parents and they need to band together and say hey you know um this is not right and so mm -hmm. um so I, the question that you asked was what can parents do and i went all the way around <laughs> but no 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 no, uh, <laughs> some questions big, thorough answers, and you have mm -hmm. provided this because you have presented the case uh, on both sides. And mm -hmm. I, I'm certainly appreciative of that, uh, that you see both sides being a parent of uh, three young men uh, growing up. Uh, you've been a uh, parent of a student of students. You've also been teacher of students and principals of uh, uh, staff and students. And so I appreciate uh, you're not sugarcoating or not being biased one toward the other or against the other, uh, but you laid out the situation in terms of the segregation, uh, in terms of why uh, you perceive to be uh, low achievement and attainment and what needs to be done. And that's, that's commendable because most uh, interviews don't ever ask that question, uh, what must we do in order to change the situation? You didn't just point out uh, the issues and the problems, but you also came up with what you felt were good viable solutions and for that we thank you this is crossroads i have been in uh, interview with dr patricia syfax who is a retired principal of 16 years served in four schools she is now serving as adjunct professor 
at Alverno College, where she attended, and Cardinal Stritch uh, University in Milwaukee. She's a leadership coach. Uh, she's, a, uh, she's also a mentor, and she does counseling, and she works with youth and young people. So I want to thank her on today. Our time is just about out. Uh, Dr. Syfax, do you have one parting word that you would like to give us? Well, um, I, I just want well, to leave with this one last note since we were just talking about what uh, families can do. And just remembering that there is power in our voice. And when we speak and when we come together um, and speak out against issues, uh, whether it's regarding um, our child's school or, um, you know, uh, a discriminatory practice, that is the only way that um, things will begin to change. And I uh, have come to uh, just believe that I call it feedback. Like, for example, yeah, I went shopping and I noticed every time I come into this one store, you know, I am not acknowledged the way others are. So I said to myself, you know what, they need that feedback. So they need to know. So we, things cannot change unless we speak out and use our voice and our voice can be powerful. So use your voice today. Thank you so very That's much. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. A very informative uh, conversation on this morning with Dr. Patricia Syfax. Uh, there's so much more that we could talk to her about, but our time uh, has certainly come to a close. And this is Crossroads, where North and South meets East and West. Until next time, thank you so very much. May God bless you and may God keep you. And thank you, Dr. Syfax for Thanks being for our guest me. on this morning. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.